Welcome everyone to a special episode of Ask Anarchan. I'm your host, Joel Houle, and this is our podcast series where we talk to our experts about the work that they do here at Natural Resources Canada. If you're a loyal listener, you might remember our conversation with research scientist Alexandre Normando back in episode 12 when we discussed his work studying underwater landslides. Today, we're meeting with one of Alexandre's colleagues to talk about the importance of a specific landslide that caused a massive tsunami in Newfoundland back in 1929. If you're listening to this episode on November 18th, you might be interested to know that today is the 90th anniversary of that tsunami. For those of you who are new to the show, we call this series Ask Anarchan because we want to hear from you. At the end of the episode, if you have any questions on today's topic, just head over to Twitter and tweet at us using the hashtag Ask Anarchan. Our experts will do their best to answer all your questions. Also, if you happen to be on Twitter anyway, you might as well start following me at at JoelScience. I share some interesting info about our podcasts as well as other cool science stuff. We release an episode of Ask an Arcan once a month on average, so make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Okay, now that we've gotten all that promotional stuff out of the way, let's bring out our guest. Our guest today is marine geoscientist Calvin Campbell. Calvin, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Now, you study marine geohazards. Can you explain what those are and the type of work that you do? Sure. Yeah. So I, I study uh, marine geological hazards or, or marine geohazards, um, and those are geologic, geological events that happen in the offshore area. So Canada has the longest coastline in the world. We have a huge offshore area, and uh, the sort of work that we do uh, is it's research around events that can cause harm to populations and to infrastructure, either along the coast or on the seabed. So the sorts of things might include uh, offshore earthquakes, uh, submarine landslides, and any process that might move uh, mud or sediment around on the seabed. So there is this specific incident that you have been studying, which is a tsunami that took place in Newfoundland back in 1929. What caused that tsunami? Right. So we are coming up on the 90th anniversary of that event. It was occurred on November 18th, uh, 1929. And uh, about 5 p.m. Uh, in the late afternoon, I guess in, in, in Newfoundland time, um, there was a large there was a large earthquake about 250 kilometers south of the Buren Peninsula, so off the southern tip of the island of Newfoundland. And uh, this earthquake uh, occurred at a depth of about 20 kilometers, and that earthquake triggered a large submarine landslide. Um, we know that a submarine landslide occurred because a series of submarine cables that run across the seabed in that area that were connecting North America to Europe at the time um, to a telegraph network, they were, they were broken uh, and we have very specific times uh, or exact times when those cables were broken. That, that, so that tells us that there was a flow of sediment moving down the slope uh, to break the cable. So that earthquake was a, was a major event. It was felt as far away as, as Montreal and New York City. Um, but the, the major damage uh, due to that um, that earthquake was the tsunami that was generated. So about two and a half hours after the initial earthquake, um, a large wave uh, struck the coast of uh, southern Newfoundland along the Buren Peninsula. And that event, that tsunami, uh, caused the deaths of 28 people, left many hundreds of people homeless, um, washed out buildings out into the sea, and was uh, to date uh, the most number, the 
highest number of documented casualties due to an earthquake uh, in Canada. Wow, 28 people. Uh, I can't imagine if that happened today. I mean, the damage would be even more significant, I, I imagine. Um, so why is there an interest in studying this particular landslide? Well, it's a unique case in, in, the, in the sense that um, it's not often that we can tie a submarine landslide to a trigger, which was the, the deeper earthquake in this case, and also have evidence um, of what the, the tsunami effect or what the, the damaging effects were of that event. Um, do you sound uh, to map the seabed offshore uh, in offshore areas because you can't see the, the seabed uh, from, the, from the sea surface. You can't see through the water column, so we have to use sound. And um, if you look at these very detailed maps of, of, of the seabed where we have them, uh, you'd be shocked to see the widespread evidence of, of submarine landsliding along most of the areas offshore Canada, uh, and really globally, it's a very common common thing. Um, so it's, it's obviously something that happens regularly in the geological past. Uh, the difficult thing is to be able to get precise ages on those landslide deposits. So in the 1929 event, we have really hard evidence that there was an earthquake and a landslide that generated a tsunami. So it's a case where we have very uh, good control in terms of the timing and the, the trigger of the event. And so that makes it worthwhile studying um, and also to see, you know, how often do these things happen in the past and what's the likelihood of something like this happening uh, future. So you made an interesting discovery while studying this landslide. Can you share your findings with us? Sure. Well, there were two uh, papers related to this event that were published uh, recently. And I guess the the first one that I, I wasn't directly involved with, but it did involve uh, colleagues here at the Geological Survey and was led by a, a PhD student at Dalhousie University that uh, proposes the idea that instead of there simply being a, what we call a relatively thin-skinned submarine landslide that slid down the slope, there was actually a much larger block of the seabed that slumped or squatted, if you will, um, about 100 meters uh, of vertical offset. Because to generate a tsunami, you need vertical displacement of the water column. And what this uh, this recent research showed was that about a 550 to 600 cubic kilometer block of the seabed essentially slumped about 100 meters in vertical displacement. And that was also contributed to the, to the tsunami at, at that event. The other um, research that recently came out from, from our group, uh, led by my colleague Alex Normando, was a, a look at whether or not these events um, happen frequently in the past or not. Um, so we have looked at that in previous research, and previous studies tended to show that these events were not that common. They might have happened once every six to 10,000 years uh, during the Holocene, during the last 10,000 years. The recent work that we've published show that these events might actually be quite a bit more frequent. Um, we show that appear to occur about once every thousand years during the last 4,000 years, so a recurrence about uh, once per thousand years. And uh, the other thing that we discovered was a previously undocumented, very large uh, submarine landslide southwest of the 1929 area on uh, a feature we call the uh, Laurentian fan, a large depositional fan uh, south of uh, Nova Scotia, Newfoundland. And that uh, landslide was dated from 500 AD, or about 1,500 years ago, 
and it covers an area of about 15,000 square kilometers, uh, a very large uh, submarine landslide, about three times the area of Prince Edward Island, and it involves volumes on the order of 250 to 300 cubic kilometers of sediment, so a very, very large submarine landslide event. If I understand correctly, the research, your research suggests that it's not a matter of what if another event like this will happen, but a, more of a matter of when it will. What does that mean for coastal communities and our underwater infrastructure? Right. So, I mean, that, that is, the, that is the, the, the golden key here is to be able to try to predict uh, when and where future events might happen. And it's important to point out that... Um, not every earthquake generates a submarine landslide. Um, not every submarine landslide is generated uh, by an earthquake. Um, and also that you may or may not get a tsunami with either event. So um, we look particularly at submarine landslide uh, distribution and, and recurrence. So where have these happened in the past? How often have they happened? And uh, from measuring the strength of the areas where there haven't been submarine landslides, the strength of the sediment, we can get an idea of how sensitive those areas are to, to submarine landsliding in the future. I honestly don't have uh, a solid answer of, of when these, the next one might happen, uh, but it's important simply to remind people and to raise awareness that this has happened in the relatively recent past and, uh, you know, just make the public aware that... Um, this type of uh, phenomenon should be considered in terms of uh, safety planning and in terms of uh, managing the offshore area. If our listeners want to find out more about underwater landslides, are there any resources available online or otherwise? Absolutely. Um, I guess in terms of earthquakes, definitely just just simply Google Earthquakes Canada, and that will take you to Natural Resources Canada's uh, earthquake uh, page, which has lots of information about uh, historic earthquakes as well as the current earthquakes that have happened recently uh, in Nova Scotia. The other place that I would uh, send the audience is to, to geoscan.nrcan.gc.ca. And a simple search there on submarine landslides will, will uh, produce many uh, reports on submarine landslides offshore Canada. We will put the links to those sites in our description for our podcast. Um, Calvin, thank, thank you so much for taking the time to come and talk to us today. No problem. It's great to talk about submarine landslides. So, this is the end of the episode. But like always, it doesn't mean it's the end of our conversation. If you have any follow-up questions for our experts, get on Twitter and tweet at us using the hashtag AskNRCAN. Also, if you're interested in learning more about the scientific work that we do at Natural Resources Canada, check out our online magazine called Simply Science. We have a ton of great content for you, including articles, videos, and previous episodes of this podcast. If you check out the podcast page for this episode, we'll have links available to any relevant material so you can learn more about what we talked about today. The best way to find Simply Science is either to Google it or click on the banner from our website at nrcan.gc.ca. And... If you like this episode and you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, please leave a review and subscribe so you can check out any previous or future episodes. That's it for us today. Thank you for listening. We look forward to hearing from you, and we'll see you next time.